Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Good morning, children are dismissed for Children's Church. Have a great time. Well, good morning, my name is Aaron Barner. I'm, I have the great privilege of being the senior pastor here. For those of you who are visiting with us, we're really glad that you have decided to join us as we worship this morning together. If you have your Bibles, you would be willing to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue our series. It's been a few weeks, and several of you have asked if we are going to return back to the book of Romans, and this morning we are. We're going to finish uh, Romans chapter 8 here this morning. Uh, I broke Romans 8 into three different sections. Uh, Romans, uh, um, I call it A, B, and C. So this morning we'll be covering uh, C, the C section, as we continue our series. I've labeled this morning, weakness plus Christ equals strength. Weakness plus Christ equals strength. And so we look forward to digging in the word here. If you would, if you're willing and able, would you stand with me as we read Romans chapter 8? We're going to start in verse 26. And we'll read through the end of the book here, or end of the chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, 26 through 39. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the treasure of this chapter, for the truths of it. And Lord, we would just pray that your spirit would do a work in us this morning. Lord, that your spirit would intercede on our behalf. Lord, that your spirit would reveal to us the hidden things of our heart, that we may see the truth of your word 
Lord, that we would hold fast to what you've told us, what you're reminding us of, the new principles that we may even learn. Lord, wherever we are in our lives as we stand here in this moment, Lord, we pray that you would come and do your work in us, that we may glorify you and glorify your name. We thank you for this time. May you be honored, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to just jump right in, okay? Because you know, as we've gone through this, there's been some Sundays where I have been a little bit more long-winded. And so I don't want to be long-winded and tell you a bunch of stories and things. I want to jump in, and then we're going to keep going, okay? Uh, Romans chapter 8, we start here in this section of verse 26. And he uses the word likewise. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And if you actually go back a verse, look and see what he tells us in verse 25. Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And in a sense, you, you get this, uh, I want to remind us, this idea of we are limited, all right? And Paul's helping us to see this uh, because what he says here in verse 25 is that we can't, we can't see, but we have hope. All right, we have this hope with patience. Remember we talked about hope not as hoping the Browns win, even though they did last week. Like hoping, like it's a, for sure, it's a certainty. Paul's writing, we have that hope, uh, that certainty with patience. We have a certainty that God is who he is. And as he walked us through, as we walked through, uh, that there is a certainty that is coming, that future glory uh, that we will get to experience as his children. As he builds, so we have this hope with patience. Because why? Because we can't see. All right. He says it there in verse 25. For what we do not see, we can't see it. He then continues in verse 26. And he says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Because not only can we not see, but Paul continues, he says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought to. So here is God helping us not only with our hope, we have this hope and patience because we can't see. But now Paul continues in this, in this section to help us to say we, we have help. We have help because we don't even know what to pray. We don't know what to say. And in that weakness, in that time where as life happens, this spirit, and he continues here, he says, the spirit himself intercedes for us. This is a great phrase that he not only uses here in verse 26, but he's going to use it again in just a few verses that helps us to realize there is one who intercedes for us. The spirit of the living God that resides in us, that Paul's been talking about, uh, that, that the God of the universe, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, now resides in you and me. And not only does he reside in us, but he's interceding for you and me. He's going on our behalf before the perfect and righteous judge, the just judge, who knows all, who sees all, and then he sees us, who we sin now, the bigger picture here in this section of, of Romans, I believe, is shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? That's the start of this section. And Paul continues to, to, 
to build upon that? Certainly not. He says, for sure we don't. But we have this spirit of the living God residing in us. And when we are in our weakest moments, Paul's addressing here, uh, when we get those weak times, those times where we just can't make sense of it because we can't see all of God's purposes and plans, there is one who intercedes for us, the spirit of the living God, the spirit who lives in you and me. Continuing on, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought to, verse 26, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We've seen this term earlier in this chapter, this, this idea of groaning, how creation groans. It longs for something that, that isn't yet fulfilled. And, and here now the spirit uh, intercedes for us with these groanings. It's the same Greek word, these groanings that are too deep to, for us to understand. There's a longing, there's a yearning, even by God, that we would be able to understand, that we would be able to comprehend, that we would be able to work through those weaknesses and those times where, where things just don't make sense. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts, let me just pause there for a minute. We do not have a God who has just created this world and created us and left us here. There are some theologians through the years who, who have come to that understanding. Oh, there is uh, this God who's just put us here and then he's left us in charge and he's off in a distance. And one day he'll come back and he'll rule over. No, God is interacting every day, all the time, all around us. God searches your heart. Does that scare you? Does that encourage you? Does it excite you? When you think about a God who is so personal that he wants to know your heart. He's not just looking at what you're doing. He's not just looking at your actions. No, he wants to get to something deeper. And here is a God who searches and knows our hearts. He searches our hearts and knows what is the mind of the spirit. This verse helps us to show that the God of the universe, the God, the father and God, the son and God, the spirit, they, they work together. They're coming together. They know one another. And even though they are distinct, they are one God. And, and, and as we see this here, the God who searches the hearts know what, knows what the mind of the spirit is. Um, because the spirit intercedes for the saints, what? According to the will of God. So God, the spirit who goes on our behalf, who goes with groanings that are too deep for, for words, the God of the universe understands what those groanings are. And he intercedes for us knowing what is the will of God. Here's an example. You ever prayed for something? And then later realize like it was such a blessing that you didn't get it, right? I think we could all share stories of that. And, and that's our limitedness, right? That, that's our flesh where we're praying and we're like, Lord, I could really. And I remember back in the day, I'm, Lord, I could really use a girlfriend. Like I could really like, and you pray and you pray and you're like, maybe this girl is the right girl. And you're praying and you're like, 
or Lord, I could really use this thing. This would really help me or this home. Or if I only had this and you pray, but yet God doesn't give it to you. And then later something takes place and you realize you're like, God, I'm so thankful that you know what's best. That helps us as we look at this passage that the spirit interceding for us knows exactly what is the will of God. And so no matter what takes place in our life, the spirit is working hand in hand with the father. So it's not like they get their, their, their signals mixed. We were talking a little bit in our Logos class about doctors, right? And how doctors work together and they, they need to communicate. If this doctor is in charge of this and this doctor is in charge of this. And then they, it's important that they communicate and know so that the, they're serving you and helping you get better. And sometimes that, those signals get crossed and sometimes they don't align. The Spirit, the Father, and the Son all align. And the spirit that resides in you as he's going on your behalf before the father, he knows you, he knows exactly what is best for you, and he knows what the father's will is for you. So as he's interceding for you, he's doing it in a perfect way. Doesn't always feel that way though, does it? That's why Paul, in this richness of this text, is going to remind us what is going on. What we can't see and what we can see. What he's showing us here is what we can't see. That, that in our weakness, remember how he starts this section, verse 26. In our weakness, when we feel helpless and hopeless, when we feel like there's an abandonment or we feel like there's this question of why is this taking place and what is the whole purpose of this, that there is something deeper that's transpiring and it's the fact that it's the God that you place your faith and trust in is working. So no matter when in your weakness you feel like you are alone and that God has abandoned you, come back to this truth. Come back to the truth that God is constantly working on your behalf. Regardless of how it feels, he's interceding. He is groaning. The spirit is groaning. And God, who searches your heart, has a will for you. And his will is perfect. Let's continue. Verse 28. Because now we get to this verse that is... Um, abundantly abused, (laughs) right? We'll read it here. And we know, now let me just pause there for a minute because there's something earlier that we didn't know, right? Verse 26 says, we do not know what to pray. So here Paul is saying, this is something we don't know. And now he's going to follow that up. And he's using terminology that helps us to put context, all right? As you study the Bible, it is critical important that you don't take a verse out, all right, and claim it as something that the context doesn't tell us is the truth, all right? That's how cults start. Seriously. You want to start a cult, take a verse, one verse, and make it say something that it doesn't say, all right? Or even just a little bit of a verse, And understand that Satan does that. 
He uses scripture. Think about it. Go back to when he tempted Christ. What did he do? He used scripture, but he twisted it. Think back what he did with Adam and Eve when, when he was in the garden and with Eve. He, he twisted the words of God. Did God really say that? When we look at this, we know is building off of what we do not know. We do not know how to pray. There are times that we do know how we pray. But in our weakness, in those times where it's really difficult and challenging, when we can't make sense of life, in our weakness, we don't know how to pray. And yet there is one who intercedes for us. Paul is building upon that. What we do know. What do we know? That's the question. Verse 28. We know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, those who love God is the same person as those who are called or people who are called according to his purpose. Those who are loved by God and those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose are the same people. And the promises here, we can know what? That all things work together for what? For good. Now, let's define good. Because my guess is your definition of good is different than God's definition of good. Right? We don't want to talk about that. But that's critical to what we see here. We know that those who love God, all right, all things work together for good. It doesn't say his good, our good. It just says good. Work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. We we're going to look at that in the next verse here. The good, when we look at this, it may not be for your good or for our good. Wait a minute. Whoa. What are you saying here, Pastor? All things don't work together for my good. Look at the text. What's the text tell you? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Some manuscripts would read it, God works all things together for good, or that God works in all things for the good. But when we look at this, the defining good is not your happiness. It's not so that you can have a contentment or not that you can have an ease of life. This mindset we've got to break ourselves from, and it's so difficult. It's all around us. It's not just the health and wealth gospel. It's, it's, it's really ingrained in us, even as Americans. This idea that if I know Christ, and Christ is in me that life should be easy is not biblical. It's not scriptural. We want to we claim that. And, and I love this the last couple years, this whole idea of claiming that. I'm, I'm going to claim that in the name of Jesus. I, I don't see that scripturally. Yeah, I should know it. I should believe it. All right, yeah, you can claim a truth as your own, 
but here's the, here's the thing. We think that we do something to make it right. We do something, and if I do it all right, then life will be easy. No, it's not according to our purposes that things are good. Go back to the garden. When God created Adam and Eve, and he created all of creation, he said, as he went through each day, it was good. And then he created man and woman, and he said it was very good. He looked at it all, and he says, this is very good. There is a moral aspect of this good. And it's the same idea that Paul is referencing here. This idea of good. And God is desiring and striving that the world would see good because it's a reflection of who he is. It's a reflection of of his very character. And so this idea of things being easy for us puts us at the center of the focus. And the truth is, Romans chapter 8, nothing should be further than the truth. The constant reflection is not about you and me. We are living our lives to get out of the way so that the glory of God may be shown. We see throughout Romans chapter 8, it is God doing the work, and it's me who places my faith in him. It's me who trusts in him. It's me who understands what this truth is. To understand the God of the universe and who he is and what he has done. What he continues to do. So the good that comes what we see here, it's good that pleases God. All things work together for good. All things work together so that God may be pleased. Even in darkness, even in hardship, it is God's desire and it is part of his very character for good to take place. We wrestle with that because we are part of this creation, as we saw earlier in Romans 8, that is groaning. Why do we groan? Because there's sin. All things, though, all things work together for good. To those, for those who are called according to his purpose. So how do you justify that when you see disease, disaster, and death, decay? When life is unfair, people are brutal. There's a total opposition to God and to his created order. How do you justify all of that and call it good it's not good but we answer it with this with this question you're like well how do you answer something with the question if you have children you know exactly how that happens who is god are you god is there a god Who is he? He is supreme and sovereign over all things. And that's what Paul is writing and reminding the Romans here. And he reminds us today. There's a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And he is the one who is working it for his good. 
as we continue, Paul writes in verse 29, he continues this whole concept and this thought of, of God and those who love him. He says this, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And I just want to pause here and let's talk a little bit about these terms. N- number one, we see he, who he foreknew. Those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose, for he foreknew them. This is a term, it's a very intimate term, just like Adam knew Eve. In, in the New Testament, this is the, the term ganasco, where you know something intimately. It's an intimate knowledge. God foreknew us. I know there's some people who struggle with that. Don't struggle with this idea. You might struggle with the next word. But understand God and his bigness. He foreknew you. As David wrote in the Psalms, uh, before I was even born, while I was in my mother's womb, as you think of this concept and this idea of such an awesome and great God that before the world was created, he knew you. I, it's overwhelming to me. And yet it's true. And it shows the personalness of our God. The second word is predestined. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This idea of predestined. People get hung up on this, meaning he chose us. Does that mean that he didn't choose others? Paul doesn't write about the negative. He doesn't write about the sinner. He could have. He did it earlier in the book of Romans. He didn't choose to do that. Why? Because he's talking about those who have placed their faith in Jesus, that it wasn't the law that saved them. It's their faith in Jesus that saves them, that justifies them, that redeems them, that makes them right. And so in this, he says, listen, God, who foreknew you, who saw you, he predestined you. He chose you. If you have any trouble with that, I want you to pause and back up. And if it's you that's doing the choosing versus God that's doing the choosing, what road does that lead you down? You have to walk that. And where does that lead you in your travels? I want a God who chose me. That said, you know what, Aaron? I saw you. And there was nothing that you could do to come to me. But I came to you because I want you to know how much I love you. Instead, there are some who would say, oh, this whole idea of predestination and God choosing me, that's that's hogwash, which who washes a hog anyway? Maybe that's where that came from. But this idea of, of God choosing me, no, I choose God. I chose to believe in him. That's not what Paul says. Again, theology is critical and important to our daily walk. The importance for us to understand, if you're a child of God and you sit here today, it is because of the grace and the mercy of God that he has chosen you as his child. 
Is that overwhelming to you? It should be. Out of all the people of the world and all the years that could have happened, God chose you in this moment in time. And you've placed your faith in him because he predestined it. And not only that, the text tells us he predestined us to be conformed into his image, to the image of Christ. And when we look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews helps us to see that Christ is the image of the unseen God. And so now we get to this full picture. The God of the universe who's working in all things for good. Even though we may not understand it. Even though we can't comprehend it. The fact that he foreknew us that we would love him, that we would be called according to his purpose. He chose us, he predestined us to do what? To be conformed into his image. So I get to be like God. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. You, we do, we get to be image bearers of the almighty God. We walk around compartmentalized today doing our own thing not fully understanding this idea and this concept of predestination that God chose you so that you would image, that you would bear his image. That we would, we would be conformed to his image, not be conformed to the image of this world. It's like, the, when I, I remember back when Lisa was teaching early on, and she got this jello mold of the United States. It was pretty cool. And so she made this jello mold, and of course you put in this liquid, and then you put it in the refrigerator, and out you know, comes this really cool figure. Like it's solid, right? And I remember her taking it out and flipping it over. I'm like, that is so cool. And you can see little details, but it is the whole United States. I say that because that's what the world is trying to do. It, it's trying to get us to that mold to mold, to look like them, to look like something that is not the truth. And Paul's going to talk about this a little bit later in this book. So I don't want to highlight it too much, but it's this idea, though, that we are to be conformed. We're to be put in this mold, not of the world, but to be conformed into the image of Christ. And how do we know what that image looks like? You know what? God gave us something. He gave us the Bible. And he helps us to know what the truth is. It isn't a bunch of rules or regulations. It helps us to see what is Christ? What does he look like? How did he act? How did he speak? What does he desire for us? And he gave us this love letter. But he gave us instruction. And he gave us understanding to be able to comprehend it. So that how, with the spirit working inside of us, we may see the image of, the, of Christ. And that we would be conformed to his image. We were predestined. You didn't choose it. And that shouldn't bother you. You should rejoice and be glad. God gives us choice. Yes, he does. That's why if you're a child of God, you chose to accept that free gift that Paul talks about. You chose to accept by faith, accepting that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose again three days later. Accepting that that was sufficient enough to take away all of your sin. 
to claim Christ as your Lord and Savior. You had that choice, but God knew that you would choose that. In fact, he not only knew that you were going to choose that, he chose you. Before the foundations of the world, the book of Ephesians tells us. Which is absolutely amazing and stunning. And yet it should even more motivate us. That we would see the bigness of God in his sovereignty. But that we would follow what he has called us to do. To be conformed into the image of God. And I love this phrase that Paul puts here. In order that he might be the firstborn amongst his brothers. Who's this talking about? And why does he put this here? It can be a little confusing, but really Paul's talking about Christ. And he's talking about this whole concept of being firstborn amongst the believers. And actually, the New Testament tells, shares this phrase six different times. The firstborn amongst the believers. Paul here is helping us to see, again, it's not about the rank. It's about the rank. It's not about the birth order. It's not that Jesus was born first. No. We know that Adam wasn't born first. He was created. And yet here Jesus is. He wasn't created. John chapter 1 tells us that. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was part of creation. He was creating. He was the creator. When there was nothing, there was Jesus creating. So he could not have been part of the creation. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the rank. He's talking about that Jesus has the preeminence. And in Psalms chapter 8 verse 27, the psalmist helps us to realize that here is Jesus, the coming Messiah one day, and he will have preeminence over all things. You talk about an awesome savior, that's our God. That's our Christ. That's the Messiah. That's the one we place our faith and trust in. That's the one that we are to be conformed into the image of. The one who has preeminence over all things. He's the highest. There is no one higher than him. Somebody will win the Super Bowl this year. They'll be the winners, the highest team. There's always that striving to be the highest, to be the best. Do you realize that there is no one greater than Jesus? There's no one higher, no one more perfect. And yet that's the one that we get to be conformed into the image of. We're predestined to be conformed to his image. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. He called you. He called you to be his own. Paul's talked about this, and he's going to continue to talk about this. The great privilege of when God calls, we could hear. And not only called, we're summoned. This is a, this is a, um, it's a term that is um, legal to summon, all right? Back a few weeks, I confess. Something happened as I was driving. And so then I had this piece of paper that says that I was summoned. <clears throat> right? You ever get one of those? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I confess it was wrong. I was summoned 
and legally I, A, either had to pay what was due or I had to show up. And if I did neither, there would be big trouble, which by the way, it's all taken care of. You don't have a fugitive on your hands here, okay? Not yet anyway. That summons that calling, okay? It's a call to task. It's a call to say, this is what I have for you. We see in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, walk in a way that's worthy of your calling. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12 likewise says the importance of living according to our calling. We've been called. Whom he has called, he also, what's the next term? Justifies. He declares right. And again, another legal term. To be in right relationship with God. Again, something you can do? Nope. I, I can't do this. Christ does it for us. God has done these things for us. He's justified us. That's why in chapter 3, verse 24, we've already seen that we are justified by what? By the law? No, by his grace. Not through human works of the law. In Romans 3, verse 20. We are justified because of God's grace. I am made right. And one day, every person will stand before God and give an account. You will stand trial. I'm glad I've been summoned already. I've been called and I've been justified. Next is this term, those who he justifies, he also glorified. And notice the term, the, the, the tenses of these, whom he predestined, whom he called, whom he justified, whom he glorified. I know it's a little simple, but it's all done. It's past. And this idea of being glorified, it, it's the same word that we would get our English doxology, doxa, to praise, to honor, to think that God calling us, God predestining us, God, God justifying us ultimately gives him glory. And one day we will see in the fullness our glorified state. John chapter 15, verse 8, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. Paul even writes in Galatians 1.24, God is glorified because of me. You get to glorify God. God is glorified just by you being his child. Shall you continue to sin that grace may abound? How, how, why would we? Why would we want to do that? Well, very simply because we like sin. You like it. Admit it. Yet sin isn't what God desires for us. In fact, there's going to be a lot of opposition to living for him. And that's where Paul goes then. 
And he asks this redundant question as he has asked before. He asks another one. Who's against us? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul is going to list now four who's. Not who and whovilles, but or the music group, but he lists four who's. Who is against us in verse 31? Verse 33, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And verse 34, he says, who is to condemn? And verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I love it because this second charge of who shall bring any charge against the elect is the same term that's being used legally about God summoning us, God calling us. It's the same term here. Who's going to bring these charges or these calls against you? Who has that legal right? And notice he doesn't say, and this is part of our translating, the translators didn't state what. The translators helped us to see who here. So it's not necessarily what, but who is against us. When life doesn't make sense, in our weaknesses, we struggle to see what the future has and what the present is going on. When we wrestle with that, we may feel like God is against us. Paul is writing and saying, who's against you? Who is it that brings these charges against you that you've already been cleared from? Who's condemning you? And finally, who's, who's separating you from this great love that God has showed us? Who's doing that? Who do you believe is at work in all of this? And then he gives us a psalm in verse 36. Verse 36 says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I think Paul puts this in here to help us to realize that suffering and pain and hardship have been around for a long time. It's not something new for God's children. He lists several things in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We don't have time to go into all of these. Is there anything that he leaves out? It's all hard. I don't know where you're at and what's going on in your life. It may be hard right now. But as you come back to it, Paul says this, verse 37. No. What do you mean, no? Shall these things separate us? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. A couple things here as we read this. In all of these things. That's a big word that we've seen throughout the text here. All. He works all things together for good. See, when we look at this, all things in everything that trans transpires in our life. 
all things, we are more than conquerors. This, this word conquerors is pretty cool. When you dig in a little deeper, it's actually the word Nike. We, 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 you know that company, right? right? This is where they get their, their whole start from, Nike. It means a victory, all right? And, and it comes from that root word of victory is Nike. This term here is only used once in the Bible. The term Nike or victory is, appears several times throughout the Bible. But this term here, hyper Nikeo or hyper Nike, gives us this idea of prevailing completely. Not only do we have the victory, but it's a hyper. Like it's intense. Like it's to the max. This idea that we are more than conquerors, we are victors to the greatest degree. I love what, Paul, what John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, when he says, it is through our faith that we overcome this world. It goes along with our theme for this year, walking by faith. Even though we can't see even though we're weak and we don't understand and we can't comprehend what in the world's going on, we are hyper victorious. Why and how? We are hyper victorious through Him who loved us. It's because of the love of God. Again, it's not because we have done anything special. It's not based upon our merits. It's because the God of the universe loves you and me that much. That we could be victorious in this way. For I am sure that neither, and I love how he says this, I am sure. He doesn't say I think. This term, I am definite. I think Paul would hinge his life upon this. And he did hinge his life upon this. And we know the apostles did hinge their life upon these truths. That they were willing to follow Jesus and to spread the good news about him to a world, even though it may cost them their life. They knew this was true. For I am sure that neither death, and every one of them experienced it. death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. That sums it up, doesn't it? Verse 30, 39 tells us, nor anything else in, there's that word again, all creation. And he's already covered the things that we can't see. The angels or the rulers, the principalities of this world. No, they can't separate me from God's love. Because God's love is what makes me victorious. So none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are you sure of this morning? What do you know? What are you grasping? What is the truth that you just don't want to let go? Is it the lies? 
that says you're not good enough, you haven't done enough, you're not worthy, maybe you weren't chosen, are you going to know and grasp hold of the truth? What spurs us on as followers of Christ is not guilt. It's not going to be by a guilt trip that you live out your faith for Jesus. What is the best motivation for you following Christ is for you to understand more fully his great love. In a world that's saturated by love, this term love, we see what love is. Not that we get our good, but that ultimately he gets his good. That he's glorified. That I can say, even in the struggles, even in my weakness, even when things don't make sense, that I can glorify God and know that he is in charge and those bad things are not happening to me because he doesn't like me, because he's mad at me, or he's trying to get vengeful with me. He's trying to get me on the right path. He just doesn't like me anymore. No, those aren't true. In fact, he called you. He loves you. He predestined you from the beginning of time. He wants you. You to know him. So much so that there's nothing that can ever separate you from his love. That is truth. That's what we have to take with us. So when we're in the midst of weakness, we need Christ. There's an old hymn and the the chorus goes like this. Christ is all I need. That's pretty much it. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All I need. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All I need. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that it is true that Christ is all that we need. Thank you for the reminder of that this morning through your word. Thank you that even in our weakness, the spirit intercedes on our behalf, goes before us to the almighty God, the judge of the universe, knowing exactly what we need, knowing exactly what the perfect will of the father is for us. He asks on our behalf. And that we have a Savior who loves us so much that he too is interceding for us. Knowing exactly how it feels in our weak flesh to go through all that we're going through. He intercedes. Knowing what it means to learn obedience in the flesh. Lord, help us to love you. To truly follow you. To truly allow your spirit to conform us into the image of your son. And may it be said each and every day. We know it's a process. And we know some days are more struggle than others. But Lord may it be said of us. That we are allowing you each day. To be conformed a little bit more like Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray.